Hello and welcome. In the spirit of reconciliation, the Avant Foundation acknowledges the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello, I'm Penny Brown. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at Avant and I'm a GP in Sydney. Like many of you, I've been living, breathing and constantly adapting to the COVID pandemic for the last two years. This year, though, it has all been about the vaccines and the vaccination program. So today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Julie Leesk. Many of you will already know her, but she's a social scientist and the professor of in the Susan Wakel School of Nursing and Midwifery in the Faculty of Medicine and Health, University of Sydney. Julie is visiting fellow at the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance. She has qualifications in public health, nursing and midwifery and has studied what people think, feel and do about vaccination for 24 years. She currently chairs the World Health Organization Behavioral and Social Drivers of Vaccination Working Group. And in 2019, Julie won the Australian Financial Review 100 Women of Influence Award. Welcome, Julie. Really has been an extraordinary couple of years. And for somebody like you who has lived and breathed vaccinations, I can't imagine what the last couple of years has been like. So for you, I really wanted to start by just saying, really, from your perspective, this is really quite unique. What have been for you personally and professionally the greatest challenges over the last year? Hi, Penny, and thanks very much for the lovely introduction. And I want to pay my respects to the Darug people, the country I am on, their elders past, present and future, uh, and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening. So I think for me, uh, the biggest, some of the biggest challenges have been the challenge of communication. And I think we've all experienced this in different ways. For me, it's been a sudden huge ramp up in having to communicate with the mass public through the mass media. And I've done now, I think, over 370 separate interviews with the mainstream media around the topic of COVID-19, particularly the behavioural and social aspects, but also public health aspects, um, because I'm trained in public health and in infectious diseases. And, and also, of course, vaccination and how we get high vaccine uptake. And that's seen us go through so many different crises in a way, such as when we had the issue with the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, the rare serious side effect of thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome. And, and also, I guess, when we've had issues like, you know, debates about the efficacy of different vaccines and my concerns about what that might mean for public confidence and and now I guess the big challenge is communicating our, the nuances around vaccination mandates which are affecting people so greatly right now and also sort of copying you know 
um, feedback from the public, whether it be somebody who thinks I'm too pro-vaccine or someone who, someone who thinks I'm a bit much too too much of a sympathiser for the so-called anti-vaxxers. So, um, yeah, it's been a pretty wild ride for me, but also a huge privilege to be able to bring that knowledge to bear on helping Australians navigate their way through this incredibly challenging time. Yeah, look, I would certainly agree with that. It certainly has been a challenging time and a massive learning curve for us all. Um, I, I'm really trying to put myself into your shoes. It's, I can't imagine it. But I just wanted to say, what do you think then are the lessons for us as a, communi as a community in relation to the vaccination programs from this last year? Yeah, so I think... What we've learned is that Australians are a pretty cooperative bunch. <laughs> and, you know, we've seen that with lockdowns and with doing all the things we've needed to control COVID. There's a fair bit of solidarity there or mateship there as well. And we are able as a country also to get very high vaccination rates. And that has been not surprising because we knew we had the capacity we have huge strengths within general practice, community health, Aboriginal community controlled sector, um, many different sectors where there are all these existing strengths in delivering adult vaccines and of course, child vaccines. And once we were able to tap into those, we were able to get high coverage, but not only that, with Delta around, we've had huge motivation, particularly in New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT, from the community and from community groups to really get on board. So I think, you know, people are amazing. And haven't we shown that through the way we've responded to this pandemic as a nation, throughout all the, the trials and tribulations, throughout all the disease and suffering that has happened. Um, but we have managed to control this relatively well on the world stage. And now we've got very high vaccination rates or we're getting there. We've still got some areas where we need to work, but I think they're the sort of inspiring things, you know, the things that give you a bit of a chill when you talk about them because they're such huge achievements and they're so important for us navigating our path forward as well. I can't remember who said it wasn't a race, but boy, have we raced to the finish line. And we're pretty close, actually. Um, we have got extraordinary coverage, I think, now in Australia, but there are still some pockets as you've already called out, there's some pockets of resistance. And we are, as GPs and as doctors that are dealing with our patients on a day-to-day -day basis, trying to help get those last people over the line. What tips and strategies would you have for us in helping us do that? Yeah, well, first of all, all credit to GPs and all the people that you work with, your practice nurses, your uh, uh, people at the front desk who... Uh, face their own unique challenges in their practices and also many of the other physicians who are engaged with the program in different ways. Uh, it has been very challenging in some respects in terms of navigating all the new announcements from government and trying to put all of the dis different bits of information together, sometimes information that's not easy to access or that is extremely long and technical in its content. And accessing that information, making sense of it 
rapidly keeping up with the changes in recommendations, you know, dosing intervals, vaccine preferences for different age groups, et cetera. And then trying to then help patients kind of turn around and, and say, okay, now we want you to have this vaccine. Um, it's very important and trying to build that confidence, having had so many sort of uh, fits and starts with the program. So uh, look, a lot of our work actually has been in addressing concerns about vaccination and helping um, primary care providers deal with vaccine hesitancy. And we've come upon a very simple approach, but quite helpful, which is to think about the person in front of you as someone who's either ready to vaccinate, who's hesitant, or is planning to not vaccinate. And then they're often there for another reason, or they're there for a medical exemption. And we recommend that when someone's ready to vaccinate, you um, make sure that there's good process um, so that their positive clinic experience will be shared with others and they'll be inspired. Um, and, 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 and that's, you know, one person's experience is an experience for many others often because they do share those experiences. Um, being very knowledgeable about the vaccines, giving correct advice, um, reassuring people who are very, very hesitant in ways that adopt your most skilled communication, because you're going to need that. Um, so sorry, that's the first group, the ready to vaccinate. Um, consent processes, valid consent is important. Um, and the second group is the very hesitant. And there you're thinking about where they're at, asking a few questions, getting them to talk a bit more at the start of the consultation, so that once you set your agenda for what you want to tell them, you have a really good sense of what they might want to know. And you're more likely to meet their needs and meet them where they're at. And that can be difficult because somebody might come out with a piece of wrong information that you want to leap in straight away and correct. We recommend just holding off and eliciting all those concerns and questions to saturation, maybe prioritising them if there's not much time um, and focusing on the most important ones. So that's a really brief agenda setting. And then addressing the concerns with validation and respect for the person, with quality information and a recommendation to vaccinate. And the same would go for people who are not willing to vaccinate. So that's the third group. And that third group of the people who are planning to decline vaccination. And there it might be thinking about what's what they're understanding where they're coming from, why they're planning that, whether they've ever had any doubts about their decision, what their plans are for future, how they're going to manage risk, maybe even finding out if they might have some motivation for protection against COVID and whether they'd be willing to reconsider in future but just keeping that bridge there so that they can walk back along it if they change their minds. That's really important. Yeah, thanks, Julie. And all of that actually is very time consuming, but it really helps if you know the patient and know where they're coming from prior. So you can, as you say, pitch things to the, their needs and where they're at. We've done an interesting thing when we started on this journey with the COVID vaccination that it was very much about encouraging and, and selling the benefits. And we've moved quite strongly really over the last few months into a mandatory vaccination. And that's 
in a number of settings for work, people for work and to get on with their lives and the limits on their social restrictions. So is that we've got essentially a mandatory vaccination. And in fact, I've had healthcare workers in tears, not wanting to give up their job, but being forced to because of the mandatory vaccination to work. I'm just interested in your views on mandatory vaccinations and, you know, how successful do you think this approach has been both for this program, but also then what impact that might have on future vaccination programs? Mm, yeah, great questions. Mandatory vaccination can work. You've got to be very clear about what you're trying to achieve and whether you really need to mandate vaccination. And in some settings, you will need to, for example, certain healthcare settings where we don't want to see patients who are vulnerable to severe COVID get COVID from their healthcare workers in an environment where there is a lot of COVID and not a lot of population immunity. That might be the same for aged care or um, fly-in, fly-out workers going to Aboriginal communities, for example. But there are other settings where we might be thinking about mandates as just a, a way to get higher vaccination rates. And that's usually not warranted unless you really, really have to resort to those. In New South Wales, it hasn't so much been about mandatory vaccination, but having vaccination as an exemption from lockdowns. So as we were coming out of that lockdown towards the end of September, um, knowing that the vaccinated could circulate around more while we were taking the time to get higher population immunity and letting other communities in the state where coverage was lower get their high coverage too. So mandates can work, but it's better to use voluntary approaches first because mandates have very significant downsides. As you've mentioned, Penny, with the, the people that you've encountered who are at risk of losing their jobs because they're not going to vaccinate. And so you only bring them in when you really need to, but you try all the other measures first. You have to make sure that there's good access, supply, of course, access, um, convenient services, and use other methods such as reminders, talking people through their concerns, incentives, default appointments, there's all sorts of behavioural strategies that can increase vaccination uptake. And if there is a community-based mandate, only keep it in for as long as it's necessary because um, the people who don't vaccinate, for example, in some states are essentially going to be in lockdown for the next year, according to some of the political announcements in an environment where you, those states may actually end up having 95% two-dose coverage if they're lucky. It's certainly looking that way, for example, in New South Wales, at least for one dose. And that will be the case in Victoria and possibly Queensland and WA. And that is a very significant level of hardship for people who are simply trying to go about their everyday life to purchase clothing, to go to the hairdresser to take their kids to the hairdresser, for example, in Victoria, because these extended lockouts, the unvaccinated apply to the, um, the, the 12 to, to 16 year olds as well. So yeah, there are some real ethical issues around them. And we explored those in a paper in the Medical Journal of Australia 
recently and um, listeners can get a preprint online and I think it's about to be properly published as well. Oh, thanks. I'll be looking. I'd look forward to reading that. It's interesting. We're getting a lot of calls. We get calls from doctors who ring our medical legal advice line. And one of the things they're really struggling with, and we're getting a lot of calls about, is as a result of the mandatory vaccination in a number of work settings, in particular, that people are seeking exemption certificates and they come to their doctor as one of the few people that can write those certificates. And doctors are really struggling with how to cover that. People, There's a number of um, what I would say peripheral reasons that people raise as reasons to get their exemptions. And I was just wondering what advice you would have for those doctors that are struggling with that. Yeah, absolutely. This is, as soon as we saw these widespread requirements in place for certain workers or commute, people in just in the community, we knew that this was going to be a real pinch point for doctors in dealing with these requests, which mostly they cannot meet because there are very, very, as you know, Penny, very few genuine um, medical contraindications and a limited number of precautions as well. So here we're thinking about a permanent or a temporary exemption and very few people will be eligible for them. We put together some guidance. It's actually based on our SKY, our sharing knowledge about immunisation um, package that, that is already available publicly. And it's sort of a discussion guide for medical exemptions. And we recommend setting an agenda to start with. So making it clear that if this is a request for an exemption, here's how this discussion usually goes. And making it clear that I, as a doctor, are separate to the rules, but I do have to, I have a legal responsibility to enforce them. So I will take a history from you. I'll make a determination. And if you're not eligible, so you're priming people, we'll talk about what your path forward might be. So you take your history, you make your determination, use the resources available to you to do that, and then hear them out because you know, as you know, there may be a bit of um, a response, an angry reaction, a protest, a debate about um, the person believing they should have an exemption. And just give them a little, I know time is short here, but give them a little bit of space to express those emotions, acknowledge them, and maybe even reflect, I can see this is really hard for you. And sometimes that may require conflict management. And there's actually some very good guidance on de-escalation and management of abuse in primary care that the College of GPs has provided. Um, and it's been updated for COVID. This is quite useful. And it's, it's a whole of practice approach. But assuming that you don't have to manage abuse here, then the next step would be to help the patient consider their options. So your options are to reconsider your vaccination decision, and we can talk you through that, talk you through your concerns, or to not vaccinate for now. And let's help you, you know, figure out what that might mean for you. After that's happened, you might be able to, in that process, hear that there is maybe a glimmer of hope that this person might reconsider vaccination. So can we have, can we book another appointment in a week's time when you've had a chance to process all this? But yeah, I think it's safe to say that a recommendation is always appropriate 
And by this stage, you've built up a level of empathy and rapport, and you probably know your patient anyway, that it's okay to recommend vaccination. So look, the last option for you is vaccinating today. I'd actually like to see you vaccinated to protect you and those around you. Would you be willing? So would you be willing is a powerful question. Would you be willing to consider having a vaccination today? Or can we, can we park this and think about it for another week or two weeks? Can I see you again in when, on, a, on Wednesday in two weeks' time? So you're keeping someone there because they will face a fair bit of hardship sustaining their decision to not vaccinate. And that's, hard, that's not good for them. Look, I think that's really helpful advice. Could have done with some of that. Um, but I, I, I think one of the key takeouts is actually leaving the door open for having further conversations and, and also making them feel like they're not rejected as a patient because remembering as a general practitioner, we're seeing them in for their range of medical problems, not just for their vaccinations. So I think that's really useful. We have actually written this guidance. Of, it's available at the Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre website. And if your listeners just Google discussion guide exemptions, MVEC, mm -hmm. um, they'll probably find it. Oh, that's really helpful. The other little tip that I've found quite helpful is when I'm actually at the point of going through what are the re only reasons we can give the exemption, I find using a form, a pro forma, actually takes me out as being the middle. I'm just following the rules in a way it's all right internalizing it um, which makes it less about me making a decision so that's just one strategy that I use as well I wish we'd had your advice when we were writing <laughs> that's <laughs> a right. living document so we can always oh, well, add you can add that in the New South Wales um uh, exemption form is actually quite good because it's quite specific. I find the one on the Australian Immunisation Register a little bit more general and therefore less useful for this particular, um, you know, strategy. Um, look, I guess I want to change shift a little bit. We all know, of course, that, you know, the COVID vaccination program has done well, but it's not over yet and the pandemic is not over yet. We only have to look to what's happening to our um, neighbours overseas. And I guess... You know, the experience tells us that the vaccines wane over time um, and the number of countries, of course, are now rolling out a booster program. And in fact, we're, they're starting to look at, and I know the United States has started vaccinating the children under the age of 12. So we've got some hurdles to overcome. And that's, of course, not even taking into account the emerging nations, which are really struggling to vaccinate their populations because of issues of supply, distribution, administration and education. So there's, you know, globally, we've got a long way to go yet. I guess really I wanted to take us in our conversation into what's happening in Australia and what are the things that we see are coming up and that you see are coming up over the next six months in relation to boosters and children and, you know, where the new variants are going to sit and so on. So I've just, I wanted just before we get on to boosters, just mop up the end of it and just talk about the, I think there's about 50,000 odd people that have had their first dose and haven't come back for their second dose? And have you got any tips and strategies for practitioners for those groups? <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think your, your listeners will know that there's always going to be this group who don't follow up for a second dose. We see it with HPV vaccine, um, most other vaccines. And 
for for um for you know GPs for example, and and to some extent um all all doctors, it's about reminding people. So even you know if you're working in an emergency department, check the record, see if they're not up to date. If they're not, recommend strongly they do get up to date and tell them where they can make their appointment. Maybe even help them make the appointment. You know, in general practice, I think calling your patients, writing a letter, sending us SMS, the little bit of messaging in there that you know you're not as protect well protected as against COVID with just one dose. Um, COVID is a very disruptive um, disease. It can make people quite sick, in, including those who've had only one dose. So it's very important that you have it. And um, please make an appointment or even make a default appointment for them. They work in improving vaccination rates. Yeah, look, thank you. All of those strategies are going to be helpful. And I'm hoping we'll get a bit of a help as well from centrally from the federal people sending out reminders to people who haven't got a second dose registered in the um, in the Australian Immunisation Register. We'll keep our fingers crossed that because that will help as well, I think. So back to the waning immunity, we've got a target recommending, and I think Australia, it's, it's quite a um, all in embracing policy that people over after six months should be having a booster or you might even call it a third dose um, and are recommending this although at this point it's not going to be part of the vaccination certificate so you'll be considered fully vaccinated after two doses but we're strongly recommending people after six months to get a booster because we know that their their immunity will be waning I guess my question for you then is how do you think doctors are best going to communicate this need for boosters? Because I can see that there'll be a lot of people had to get vaccinated, it was mandatory, and they're just not going to turn up or be interested in getting the booster. Yeah, it's hard to communicate with the patient who doesn't turn up. And again, um, sending a reminder. Reminders work. They improve vaccination rates. So try them. If there's one thing you can do, then um, however you, whatever mechanism you have, remind your patients it's time for their, um, their, their, it would be a booster for those who are not severely immunocompromised for this immunocompromised. It's a third dose to bring them up to the kinds of, you know, immunity levels that you, you most of us would have with two doses. Reminders are probably the best way for an individual provider, but this is also a population issue. It's a public health issue that requires government to coordinate its vaccination campaigns and, and make sure that people are aware of what's recommended, where and how they can get the vaccine. Some of the delivery points where they previously got the vaccine are no longer available. I mean, that's the case for me. I had my AstraZeneca vaccine at the, the hub at Olympic Park in Sydney, and that's not there anymore. So, you know, I'm going to have to form a new habit and probably go to my GP. You know, helping people with the reminding awareness, access, making sure that all people can access that information, including those from different language groups, um, from different communities who might not access the mainstream news conferences or whatever. And also, if it's a workplace, for example, having on-site vaccination, if you can manage it, works. 
it also is effective in improving vaccination rates. You know, having all opportunistic vaccination. So every time you see somebody, check their third dose. I recommend they have it, their, their booster, if they haven't already, and be aware of what the recommendations are. A reminder, though, about boosters, and this is the reason why Atagi actively recommended that they not be considered among mandates, is that the there is good evidence that immunity against any infection wanes, um, particularly around that six-month point, which is why we have the six months after the second dose for the booster recommendation. But also there's not as much evidence about whether you need a booster dose to prevent severe disease. Mm -hmm. um, and that evidence is still coming. So here we're thinking with boosters about what we kind of buy in terms of disease protection. And for healthcare workers, this is an important thing because they want to have protection against any COVID because they don't want to pass any COVID on to others. Of, of course, even a, a third dose isn't perfect protection, as we know, but it's better than two. But if people are concerned about severe disease, then two doses is still um, good according to the evidence. Yeah. And on that point of the evidence, one of the issues in this, which has fascinated me because I think of how many other vaccines I go, I give out and nobody's ever asked me for the brand or for what particular vaccine I'm administering. But in this, it's been all about which one and comparing the relative efficacy, which really has been way too much information. And the booster dose at the moment is only recommended for the Pfizer or the Comirnaty vaccine. And I'm just um, interested as to how you would be recommending practitioners manage that limited. At, I mean, that may change, of course, that recommendation, but at the moment that's where it's sitting. <laughs> yeah, well, is it also Moderna um, uh, possible for the booster? I I think it will be coming, but I believe that it's not there yet. I think that's still sitting, my understanding is it's still sitting with TGA, but I might be wrong. <laughs> I might be a week late. <laughs> yeah, that's probably worth checking. I, I, I thought it was possible, but but anyway, yeah, you know, it's hard to keep up with this, these recommendations for me included. Um, I suspect that brand choice won't be such an issue with Pfizer because Pfizer has been seen as the desirable brand to have um, and we've even heard accounts of people not wanting Moderna for their second dose because it's not Pfizer when Moderna is you know probably even more effective than Pfizer yeah, exactly. so um, it's a it's a it's I don't think it's going to be a major issue but you never know with the public you can never really um, predict how people will respond but it is what it is we can't do much about it it's probably better that there's not a choice at the moment uh, because having a, a limited choice, I guess, has created so much difficulty. But it's funny, isn't it? We never heard, you know, states that had Cervarex recommended in 2008 complaining that they didn't have Gardasil. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Extraordinary. So just a slightly different tack. You know, we've seen from the, the Doherty modelling and certainly what's also been happening overseas that as we ease restrictions, even in a community that's been highly vaccinated, we're likely to see a surge in numbers of cases. So I just, we 
we also anticipate that that will not translate into hospitalizations and ICU admissions because of the vaccination program. But I'm just interested to hear from you how you see that unfolding in the Australian context. We will have COVID around. Uh, and if you look at the other countries where they've had waning immunity, they have seen COVID come back, particularly now we've got the winter period approaching in the Northern Hemisphere. So I think we'll have a bit of a lull with COVID for now and we're doing pretty well and Victoria's still seeing their cases come down. They're still pretty high, but New South Wales, we're, we're less than I think we thought in terms of cases at under 200 now a day. But we will still see COVID circulating, even with the very high coverage levels we have, just because it's so infectious and because um, vaccination isn't perfect protection. And, you know, with efficacy rates between 65 and 90%, depending on um, the, 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 the vaccine and the, the number of doses, et cetera, and the spacing, you know, it, it will still be possible to get um, a milder form of COVID, even if you're vaccinated, and, and to pass it on potentially. So the Doherty modelling did um, provide different scenarios under different control measures. And one of those was assuming you only got to 80% and plus. So you started off at 80% with an outbreak of, I think, 300. Um, then over the next six months, you would have over 1,200 ICU admissions and 948 deaths. Now that's just one of the scenarios and that's where you had okay test, trace, isolate and not a lot of lockdown. So I think we'll probably do better than that and it's possible that next winter we'll have what looks like a pretty bad flu season but it will be COVID and probably a bit of flu back as well uh, and COVID sickness and death is not going to go away um, as it not, has not in any country. It's just that we will be able to much better control it and limit the burden on our healthcare systems. Let's talk a little bit about the vaccines for children. We know that in America they've already started to vaccinate the 5 to 11-year-olds and I know it's under consideration now. So what are your predictions about what's on the horizon here? Because it's obviously going to make a big difference to how the poor children manage their in and out of school, which is happening at the moment. Yes, I think that's one of the biggest issues and one of the biggest draw cards for vaccinating that age group, because as um, your listeners will know, the burden of disease in children younger than 11 for COVID is much, much smaller. So it's more likely to be experienced as a milder respiratory illness. The children who are more at risk of going to ICU, and it's a very limited number, are those with existing um, comorbidities um, such as lung disease, immunocompromise, et cetera. Um, and that's you know, one of the reasons why we saw that initial recommendation for the 12 to 16 year olds um, initially, it was those children who are at greater risk of severe COVID. And so they do stand to benefit from vaccination more than other children. And that the same will be the case for the five to 11 year olds. Having the vaccine recommended by a TAGI in Australia is not a fait accompli. We are yet to get that formal um, advice from a TAGI. I suspect, and I don't know, I don't have any insider knowledge here, 
but I suspect it'll probably be recommended. Um, but it is very important that they are doing what they're doing now, which is looking at the data from the trials and looking at the post-licensure, uh, post-rollout um, data on safety, uh, the safety surveillance in the US where it's being rolled out in the five to 11 year olds in large numbers. Because what you wanna do is go into any program like that where the, the benefit risk calculation is a little bit more marginal with good knowledge of what the rare adverse events might be. So you know what you're weighing up. And that's precisely what they're doing right now. However, there are benefits beyond just disease prevention that I think are important when it comes to vaccination. And as we all know, one of those huge benefits is reducing COVID outbreaks in schools. So we don't see schooling disruption, which is so it severely affected our kids and all sorts of facets of the children's life. Sometimes they're even their nutrition intake because that's where they get a decent, you know, breakfast or lunch at school. So all of those things are important and I don't think we can discount that and that it's not being discounted. Um, so, you know, limitations on educational disruption, as an additional indirect benefit from the vaccination program. And to some extent also the incredible anxiety for parents mm -hmm. of those younger kids mm -hmm. who, even though COVID is less burdensome in younger kids, are still worried about it because we've socialised people to be very worried about COVID. And being worried about your kids and anxious and stressed is not a great way to be. So I actually, I personally think that that is also part of a legitimate, the set of legitimate reasons to bring in vaccination, but we need to have that safety data and we need to look at other costs, opportunity costs, program delivery issues, et cetera. And one of the other costs is also the fact that if we keep giving vaccination to our populations, all the nations that are doing this uh, have less vaccine to share with countries that, uh, that don't have good access. And that global equity of access issue is important because we want all people everywhere to be fully vaccinated with their initial doses, um, particularly in the older age groups mm. in low and middle income countries. And we also want um, to be able to reduce the risk that we'll see new variants arise because of very extensive epidemics in countries without sufficient protection. You think of the African continent where two-dose coverage is only around 10%. So there's a long way to go there. And I, I don't think it's easy to weigh up these things. Like, does a politician say, sorry, we're not going to vaccinate kids and we're not going to give boosters because we're going to give the vaccines to Africa? I think politically that would be suicide, but it's actually a very important question that is about being good neighbours and, and, and good global citizens, as well as securing our future protection against new variants of COVID. Julie, thank you. I think that is a really tricky area and where we go with this for both looking at our situation nationally and internationally is really a very interesting and difficult conundrum for us all. 
One of the things that we've been advocating for very strongly at Avant, and I know I'm, we, are, we are not uh, Robinson Crusoe in this, has been for the COVID vaccine no-fault indemnity scheme. And I know that you've also advocated more broadly for a no-fault vaccine indemnity scheme to cover off all public health-supported vaccines. So I guess I want to know how important do you think that this milestone that we've reached with this vaccine indemnity scheme is going to be in, in trying to actually bring realise that desire to actually bring in a broader scheme for all vaccinations? It's very important, but, but let me... Um premise that by saying thank you for your advocacy as well. I think quite a lot of us have been quietly advocating about these schemes with government for many years. And uh, I know that my particular efforts um, in leading letters to government um, that brought in several organisations have been going since 2016. But before that, people like Heath Kelly, Nick Wood, um, Christine McCartney, all people who have been advocating for no-fault vaccine injury compensation. Because as, you, as your listeners know, vaccine injury um, that needs compensation, it's rare, but it does happen. And it's the right thing to do because we ask people to do, to vaccinate themselves for the benefit of themselves, but the wider community. <clears throat> so we were thrilled to see Minister Hunt announce um, that he was going to bring in this indemnity scheme, not just for providers, but for the patients themselves who had suffered serious adverse events. And the specific ones that they plan to compensate are thrombos thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome and um, myocarditis, pericarditis after the mRNA vaccines. And so that's fantastic. But it's right and fair also to make sure that there is compensation for other serious vaccine injuries, because it's not just limited to the COVID vaccines. There are other children, adolescents and adults who may have a serious adverse event where there's a loss of income, there are ongoing medical costs, that where it is fair and right and just to be ensuring that those people are looked after because they're, um, you know, depending on what's happened, they're often not eligible for NDIS schemes. So having no-fault vaccine injury compensation will be good for everybody for other vaccines and may well increase confidence in our vaccination system. Um, certainly I think it would among providers. And I hope that the government will develop some strong self-efficacy around this scheme that right now they're working very hard to establish. I know. So, you know, big credit to the people in the health department and other areas of government and the health minister for bringing this in. Um, but let's think about what we could do for other vaccines in future as well. Uh, we'll be we'll be there supporting you, and um, I I agree. I think this is sort of a window of opportunity to actually broaden that scheme. So Julie, look, that brings us to the end of our our formal interview. I just want to say thank you. I could have sat here and chatted to you all night. That information really helpful, and um, thanks for the chat. You're very welcome, Penny. It was I really enjoyed it. Thanks. <laughs>